And there they all go. I love it. Okay, I asked you last week, I'm going to ask you again, how many of you have started having Leviticus as your morning devotions? Okay, one. Yes. That's success compared to last year week was zero. So only one of you. All right. What would happen if you were to think of Leviticus as a love story? Anybody ever thought of it as a love story? I'm already getting scowls and frowns, and you've got to be kidding me. Nobody thinks of it as a love story? Oh, my. Did you know it's the heart of the love story in the Old Testament? It really is. Think with me just for a moment about what life was like in the ancient world before God spoke. Okay? Picture this. Here are the nations. Trying to figure it out. (laughs) Grappling in the dark. Utter darkness. They can't make sense of anything. Oh, they think they do. But Psalm 2 says that the Lord scoffs at the nations and laughs at the nations. Uh, that's true even today, by the world. By the way, when you think about your friends and neighbors out there, they are grappling in the dark to try to make sense out of whatever they can manage to feel and see. This is the context by which God decided to speak. And that imagery is used all over. In fact, we talk about it at Christmas time often, don't we? The people in darkness... I've seen a great light. Don't we, don't we think that way at Christmas time? So picture utter darkness. You can't see anything. And then all of a sudden over on a hillside, you see a little bit of light. What's your natural tendency going to be? To move toward the light. To go see what that is. Right? Remember uh, the ten plagues at the very end. Outside the land of Goshen where the Israelites were living, it was utter darkness and they were all groping. There's a picture right there, but not in where Israel was. That's what the world was experiencing. And the world still experiences today. They have a light that they can see. Back then it was just complete darkness, utter darkness, confusion. And they're all trying to figure it out. They're all trying to make sense. And in the middle of this, God decides to speak. That's light coming into the world. Okay? So we've said several times, whenever God speaks, whenever he comes into the world, three things happen automatically. Automatically. He begins to corral, mitigate, limit evil practices. Number one, he introduces human dignity, which the world can never get to. I don't know of any example where culture has led us in the right direction apart from God intervening. Because what did C.S. Lewis argue? We all have a moral compass. It's just broken. We can't find true north. Okay? We look and we look and we look, but until God speaks, then we can find true north. And so the first thing he does is he begins to limit evil practices, mitigate that. Second thing he does is he introduces human dignity because we're worth something, because God made us. And the third thing he does is he begins to point toward the new covenant, toward true north toward Jesus. Every time he speaks or acts, that's what happens, those three things. 
And so Leviticus is filled with examples of him doing that. You see, Leviticus is the love story. It's the story of God caring so much about us that he's not going to let us grope around in the dark. Now, when you read it, you read a bunch of rules and commands, right? And you go, oh boy, how fast can I get through this to get to the good books? You know, Proverbs, Psalms, that sort of thing. But I'm suggesting that, that Leviticus is the heart, it's the heartbeat of God. And that's what we have to do is help you look underneath the commands at the heartbeat of God. Now, you've got to remember, these people, they're slaves. They just came out of Egypt, so you're all slaves, and you're sitting there on your sand dunes at the base of Mount Sinai, and he's telling you what it's going to be like for you to be priests because you're all going to become priests. That was the covenant. If you obey my commands fully, I will make you a kingdom of priests. And you were never given that privilege. Well, you have to learn what it means to be a priest, and that's what Leviticus is all about. So Leviticus, if it's at the holiness code, what that really means is that it's revealing the heart of God. That's what it means. And so don't get caught up in all of the rules and commands. You have to remember in the ancient world, they didn't know what to do. They simply didn't know. So all the nations had sacrifices. Today we're going to talk about sacrifices and the difference between the rest of the nations and Israel. They all had sacrifices. What was that based on? Pure guess. Pure guesswork. And so the nations used the the sacrifices for two primary reasons. To divine the will of the gods. By that we mean guess. Okay? To divine the will of the gods. To figure out what they wanted. And the second reason was to appease the gods. The gods weren't there to emulate they, gods were there to keep them off of our backs. So let's offer, them, let's offer them gifts because that's how we think. So let's offer them sacrifices and gifts and they'll, they'll just go about their business and do their own thing and leave us alone. Okay, talk about pagan. That's about as pagan as you can get. And it's all based on superstition and guess. And so in the middle of that, our God comes along and says, no, let me tell you the truth. Okay, let me tell you the truth. I'll start with creation. Because creation tells you a lot about who I am. I made all this. I made it for you. You're to become my people. He wanted to form a people for his own. That's what he wanted to do. Now we know the story of Adam and Eve and what happened. And so as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, in comes the darkness. And it takes over. And we can't make sense anymore. So what a blessing, rather than guessing, and I'm sure Israel was familiar with all the practices of the ancient nations. Uh, He didn't have to explain them. That's assumed. But, you know, Egypt was a superpower. So I'm sure all the nations were coming and going. That's the story of Joseph. And they all came there to get grain. And so they would be familiar with them. What a blessing it is, instead of guessing, to have God say, let me just tell you what I want you to do. Okay? So Leviticus is first and foremost an invitation. It's an invitation into a relationship. Leviticus 1.1, how does it start? If anyone is going to offer a sacrifice, that's an invitation. We begin to see something start to appear. Um, With a sin offering, for example, he says that if anyone commits an unintentional sin, we'll come back and talk about that, then they can offer an animal. Okay, that's an invitation. Well, how many animals would we be offering if we offered one for every sin? It'd be pretty busy, wouldn't it? And so what we're beginning to see is something else emerge underneath the commands, freedom, consciousness, I mean conscience, that's beginning to form 
as God gives, as God begins to speak, a conscience begins to form. And then we can begin to say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to go offer an animal, a sacrifice. Okay, that was a privilege. That was an invitation to restore the relationship with God. There's nothing in this language about being terrified of God. Okay, not like the ancient world. So he's mitigating practices, these evil pagan practices. He's beginning to bring them together to mitigate it. Say, nope, that's not the way it is at all. I'm not that kind of God. I'm the kind of God who created you. I just, he could have left you. He could have destroyed us. He could have ignored us, but he didn't. That's the message behind Emmanuel, God with us, which we just celebrated all through Advent. He said, no, I'm going to step into your world and begin the journey of teaching you the truth about how to enjoy a relationship with me. That's, that's a love story. Leviticus is the very heart of the Old Testament. It's a love story. It's a story of a God who loves us so much, he's going to make it clear. None of the commands were ambiguous. None were hard to follow. How hard is it to follow, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk? Is there any ambiguity about that? You may not understand why it was there, but that's your problem today. That's not their problem back then. Okay? You got mold on the wall? Scrape it off. Is there anything unclear about that? No, that was never the problem. That's what Paul argued. The problem was here. Here's the problem. And so what the law does, the holiness code in Leviticus, it's the heart of the Mosaic covenant. Exodus introduces it. Leviticus explains it. Numbers, they wander all over the place. And Deuteronomy repeats it. So Leviticus is the heart and soul of God reaching into our lives with love. But he does something wonderful with it. And what we're going to do is we're not going to go through and look at all the commands. I'm not going to do that. We're going to look underneath the commands and say, why are they there in each section? Why are they there? So what Leviticus does is it lays out the blueprint for which the new covenant will make it possible to follow. It's going to lay out the blueprint for the new covenant. Not in the commands and the rules. Don't get caught up there. It's going to lay out the blueprint of underneath it of what God desired all along, why he created us, for what purpose he created us, and we're going to see it when we look underneath all the commands and the laws, that blueprint. So the the Mosaic law was not capable of helping us to obey it. That's why we needed the Holy Spirit, the new covenant, if you will. We needed Jesus to come and execute that new covenant. So now we have the ability, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the ability to carry out God's blueprint that he had already designed. It's there. So Leviticus gives us the, the plan, if you will, of what we were created for. But how could you find that in darkness, groping about? You can't. So I can't, I can't imagine what it was like for the faithful in Israel sitting there hearing this for the first time. So this is what God wants. We don't have to guess anymore. Talk about freedom. Boy, that's freedom. Entrapment is when you have no idea what to do and you keep messing up, right? We said all along that what is a good definition of sin? I say to my four-year-old son, don't run out in the street or you're going to get hurt. If I don't say to him, if I don't tell him that, and he runs out in the street, he's probably going to get hurt. Therefore, it's an act of grace to say, don't do this. 
And Leviticus then becomes an act of grace by God telling us what to do and what not to do because then we have true freedom. Now we know if I become an alcoholic, I'm going to be in trouble. Okay? He calls it sin. So think of that. Every time he says call something sin, it's an act of grace. Don't do this. Don't run out in the street. That's not what you're made for. So Leviticus lays out the blueprint, which is fully enacted in the new covenant. But it's not captured in the commands. It's captured in the heart of God underneath the commands. So all the way through Leviticus, what we're going to see is we're going to see this beating heart. Okay? Because he loves us. And not only does he love us, but he wants all of us as slaves to learn what he's saying so that we become holy. What that means is we become that light, that beacon on the hill over there. Because everybody on this hill is in darkness. And all of a sudden they see a light shining. And then that should pull people toward the light. That's what God's mission is. That we would be that light. Okay, so everybody got the picture? Of what, what I'm suggesting about Leviticus? It represents the heart of God. And you're all still wondering how. Well, we're going to take a look at a couple of, um, just a couple of examples so that you can see it. I'm not going to make you read all those. You can't go out Leviticus 1 through 7 today. Next week is 8 through 10 when we talk about the priesthood. So we look at, for example, the sin offering in Leviticus 4. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally, there's a key word, all through the sacrifices and all through Leviticus, it's about unintentional sin. Okay, well, what about the person that sins intentionally? In fact, in Numbers, now they start the wandering. Moses, I don't know if this happened this way, so I'm kind of picturing it. Moses is walking along with everybody in the desert, and all of a sudden he goes, hey, wait a minute. All the sacrifices are for unintentional sin. Hey, God, what happens when somebody sins intentionally? You know what the Hebrew word means? They shake the right fist at God. The hell with you, God. That's what that means. I don't like you. I'm going my own way. So all of a sudden now we have two categories of how we sin against God. We have unintentional sin and we have rebellious sin. We have sin out of weakness, which is where all of you are. And then we have sin out of intentionality. And it has nothing to do with knowledge. We all know that lust is wrong and yet we still do it. So it has nothing to do with knowledge. It has something to do with a heart. Now, remember, in, in all through the Old Testament, we're going to see it clearer, much clearer as we move in. Four categories. You have the holy, you have the clean, you have the unclean, and you have the wicked. Okay, we're going to set the wicked aside because that's not any of you. Okay? Those are the people that do this to God. So, all these sacrifices are for you. Okay? So, you got three categories. Holy, clean, unclean. And not only are we, is God inviting us into a relationship, which the ancient gods never did. Okay? That was never part of it. Remember, we're to appease the gods. We want them out of our lives. We don't want them in our lives. We never want to emulate the ancient gods. We just want them to leave us alone and go do their thing. Because that way we're not going to be cursed. But our God is very different. So he's got something. He's inviting us into a relationship. But he also wants to teach us something at the same time. He wants to teach us what holiness actually looks like because that's where we're all headed one day. That's where we're going to look like. So he, we have these three categories. Holiness is who God is. Clean is where we are when everything's just working basically normal. Basically normal, we're, we're worshiping him. 
Unclean is when something happens that shouldn't happen that doesn't exist over here. It could be a disease. It doesn't make it bad. It just means that he's teaching a lesson. It's not over here in this realm. So the temple or the, t- the synagogue or the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, different phases, that you couldn't go in there because that represented a holy God if you were unclean. It's not that it was bad. You could just simply have a disease or something like that. And so you had to go through a process to become clean to move to here so you could enter into the temple. Those are the three categories. He's teaching them at the same time he's inviting them. Okay. Now, sin could make you unclean. That's what this unintentional sin is all about. Unintentional sin, you sin out of weakness. Okay, that moves you over here. All right? So God says, here's what you do to move back to here. And once you're here, you can enjoy his presence. He's not trying to be in any way condemning. He's trying to teach a lesson about what holiness looks like because that's our ultimate destiny. That's what he created us to be. It was that way. Okay, so he says in Leviticus 4, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, okay, what do you do? Very simple. You bring a bull down to the doorway to the tent of meeting, tabernacle, temple, slit its throat, kill it, shed the blood. You take the guts, put it on the burnt offering because God always wants the guts. You uh, take a stake, give it to the priest because that's how they have their livelihood. And then the rest you can do. Depending on the sacrifice, you can do different things with it. And so that's how God set it up. He begins to teach them about the shedding of blood right away. That's laying the foundation. We're going to come back to this. That's laying the foundation in the future on how the ancient nations thought about blood. They thought blood was the place, the way that, that demons came into the world. So of the two genders, males and female, which one deals mostly with blood? Females. They get blamed for everything. Get used to it. Okay? We're going to come back and talk about it. And what he's beginning to say in these is that, no, life is in the blood. Blood is not the place of evil and demons. Life is in the blood. He's setting the stage right here for the crucifixion. The shedding of blood. It's very simple. As we move further into Leviticus, it becomes far more detailed. And we'll look at that. But right now he's laying the basic foundation that life is in the blood. So sacrifice an animal, shed blood. Because that's good. Life, he, doesn't like the, he doesn't like the sacrifice of animals. That goes away. We'll see that later. But he's teaching them that life, that blood is good. It's not evil. So every step of the way, as he reveals his heart and starts to shape us and teach us, we're learning something about who God is. Okay? Here. So, the purpose of the sin offering was real simple to teach the people the need for purification from their sins. It taught that sin is a barrier between the guilty and God, but it also taught at the same time it creates a barrier, it creates access. Once again, we're invited into his presence. We just have to offer a sacrifice. So the very command that creates the barrier is the same one that invites access into God. None of the ancient gods or nations or religions or philosophies had any of this. Okay, so then when you turn over to Hebrews, okay, Hebrews, uh, it's interesting, chapter 8. Now you may remember I've said a couple of times that Hebrews is, I think, organized around an inner Trinitarian dialogue. 
It quotes mostly Psalms, but also quotes Deuteronomy and a few other places. But it never ascribes it to the Old Testament authors. It always ascribes it to some member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Okay? So when you read Hebrews next time, look at it. God says somewhere, and he quotes it. And so what happens is God speaks, and then the author of Hebrews explains it. And then it says Jesus speaks, and he answers God, and then he explains it. So it's creating this conversation within the Trinity for us to look at. And it becomes a model for us because at the very end, we'll see in just a minute, he tells us we have something to say to the Trinity. We can say it as well. So, and the one I'm looking at in particular, it's not going to be up here because I don't have it, but Hebrews 8, it says, uh, and God found fault with the people. So this is the Father. So here's what he said. He said, uh, he quotes the whole um, uh, New Covenant out of, out of uh, Jeremiah. And then I'm going to read the very end. This is a covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Okay, elsewhere he says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Because Paul argues that was the issue. That's why the law was good, holy, righteous, perfect, all those things. Is because here was the issue. But he goes on. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I'll forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. Yeah, praise God. That's right. So this is God speaking. And then when you turn over and then the author of Hebrews stops and explains it. And then you go over to chapter 10, and here's what Christ says. When Christ comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. You were right, God. The Father was right. The sacrifices didn't accomplish anything. And that's what he's saying. So he's answering the Father. With burnt, uh, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So I said, here I am, as it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So the Father says, I'm going to give a new covenant because the old covenant is not working. It doesn't bring about redemption. So the Son says, you're right. It doesn't. So I'll do your will. I will obey. So what do we learn right away is that Jesus responds with, I will obey. I will do it. And that becomes a picture for us all. That was in Hebrews 10, verse um, five, uh, 4 through 7. So the result of, the, of this relationship, God says, this isn't working, so I'm going to give a new covenant. And Jesus says, I agree, and I will obey it. Here's the result of it. It's in verse 10. And by that will, because Jesus said, I will do your will. By that will, um, we have been made or declared holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. That is the heart of God. That is grace right there. So the father says, sacrifices aren't doing it. They got a heart problem, so we need to fix the heart. And Jesus says, you're right. You didn't send me through sacrifices. I've come to do your will. And by the way, if you read the the very end of chapter 10, the Holy Spirit speaks up. Um, In verse um, 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies about this. So he kind of concurs with the Father. So Jesus fulfilled the burnt offering and the sin offering, and they took it off the table. We no longer have to do it. That's one offering, two offerings, actually. No two offerings we no longer have to do. Jesus took care of that. But what about the rest of the offerings? And this is where it gets really fun. Because I said, where is Jesus in Leviticus? Well, I just showed you one place. 
Let's look at another one. In Leviticus chapter 3, we have the fellowship offering. We're not going to go through all of them. I'm just giving you examples of how passionate our God is. If your offering is a fellowship offering, now that's the word for shalom. So some of your translations say peace offering. They, they translate a fellowship offering. I'll show you why in just a minute, okay? Uh, because it has to do, shalom is about community. It's about how much, how delighted we are to be in community. If, an off, if your uh, offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present it before the Lord, an animal without defect. Okay, so we're right back to where we were. Okay, right back to where we were. Take it, bowl down to the temple, slit his throat, um, give the guts to God on the altar, burn it on the altar, and give a, a, a priest, give a stake to the priest so they can take care of themselves. But then over in chapter 7, we have an added detail. Okay, in verse, in verse 12, if they offer this fellowship or peace offering as an expression of thankfulness, we're doing it as thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, they're to offer some other things, okay? And so in verse 15, here's what he said. The meat of their fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it till morning. Okay, here's what that means. I take my bowl down to the temple, slit its throat, bleed it out, take the guts out, give that to God, give a steak to the priest, and now what do I do with the rest of the meat? I have to eat it. Before sundown. How are you going to eat a bull? What's the implication? It's a barbecue. That's right. My friends from Texas. It's a barbecue. That's what it means. All of a sudden we're gathering. There's nothing in the ancient religions that have this. God blesses me. And I say to all of you, I want to go offer one of my prized bulls to the Lord to say thank you. And I can only do it well if you're with me. Let's all go together and let's have a barbecue. That's what it is. Does that generate thanksgiving when we're all together celebrating what God has done? It does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? So can you see just in a little glimpse how God's heart begins to emerge? He's teaching them at the same time he's inviting them in. And he's showing them, this is what you're created for. You're created for Thanksgiving. You're created for Thanksgiving. You're created, but you're created to enjoy it here in the community. And when we together enjoy Thanksgiving, now we're that spot of light over in the mountain over there that the world in darkness is living in. They can see now a bright light. And they say, what is that over there? I want to go see that. Okay. So... Listen to what Hebrews says about this. At the very end of Hebrews, in chapter 13, we have another part of the conversation. Here's what God says. Um, Verse 5, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God, that's the Father, here's what he says, Never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, and these are all quotations from the Old Testament. He's pulling these verses in the author of Hebrews, to show this conversation. So this is what we say. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember Jesus' response to the Father? I have come to do your will. I will do it. And now we have our response. We will do it as well. We're going to obey you. We just got brought into the heart of God. 
just like Jesus. We just got brought into that Trinitarian conversation. And our response is to say, we will do it. We're not afraid. We don't need to be afraid. We're together. Okay? So then, here's how it concludes. In verse 15, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. We now have the privilege of offering up the sacrifice. We just don't have to bring the bull. Same sacrifice. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifice is God is pleased. We're offering the same sacrifice. So Leviticus was teaching the people, you're created for thanksgiving. You're created to have a joyful heart. You're created to praise this God. And you're created to do it together. That's what they're teaching. So then when we come, now the new covenant has been enacted by Jesus, by shedding his blood on the cross. Holy Spirit has come. The heart of stone has been removed. The heart of flesh is now there, and it's beating. It's beating in the same tune now with God. Okay? We share now living hearts. And so guess what we find out? We get the same privilege. We get to offer up together sacrifice of thanksgiving. And that just pleases God immensely. That pleases him. So when's the last time you offered up sacrifice of praise? Hmm? Right? And we're going to do it again in just a minute. You know why? Because communion captures all of this. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you all. Sacrifice is reversed now. He sacrifices for us. Do this in remembrance of me, and we give him honor and praise. After supper, he takes the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my shed blood. Life is in the blood. And that's what executed the new covenant, to give us this beating heart now that matches God's heart. And so when you come for communion in just a minute, you get to enjoy. You get to just for a moment in a busy week, in a distracted nation, everything going on crazy that we can think of, just for a moment you can stop and you can offer up that together that sacrifice of praise, that thanksgiving that he talked about, that peace. We can rest from the world. And you know what? We become that beacon of light that darkness can look at and see when we do this. If we fight here, Paul argues we've already lost their testimony. If we're divided here, we're already in trouble. But we're not, are we? We're all unified in Jesus. So just for a moment, we get to celebrate that together. Father, thank you for uh, not only sending your son. I mean, we understand how important that is, but doing far, far more. You didn't neglect us. You didn't forget us. You didn't ignore us. You remembered your promise and you came back for us. And that's why we can celebrate your name, Emmanuel, because you came back for us. And not only did you come back, but you invited us into a deeper relationship with you and you gave us your spirit. Wow. Wow. So that we can enjoy you forever. Thank you.
Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So um, come and celebrate communion. I'll put your mask on.